I'll explain a little bit about that title, perhaps. When I sent it to Roberta for the program, she thought I might be talking about the age of great liners, maybe even about the Titanic. Uh, but I'm afraid it's nothing as uh, dramatic as that. Instead, what I want to talk about is the connection between Italian and American literature, and in particular about Italian-American literature, in connection to three key issues. One is geographical mobility in the form of migration, and then those other forms of mobility, cultural, linguistic, and psychological, which take the form of translation and of self-translation. These are all themes that are very dear to Susan, and I'll also be moving between two cultures and two languages, which both of us know and love very much, so the topic seemed appropriate for today. Um, and I should also say that I'll, I'll take you through a little bit of a theoretical detour at a certain point, but I feel that really Harish this morning and then Edwin just now have said pretty much uh, what I wanted to say on the theoretical side. But I'll have another stab just to make sure that it's, you know, it's, it's clear that it's there. Now, mobility in all its forms is etched into the history of Italy, as well as in that of the Americas, of course. And yet, when we talk about Italian culture, or more specifically about Italian literature, perhaps, that mobility tends to disappear, together with the names, the works, and the words of those who travelled in and out of the nation. And looking at translation, and I'll soon argue also about um, self-translation in this context, can be a potent antidote, I think, against this blindness and its inherent limitations. But equally, looking at the Italian case, as I've now become used to call it, a specific and in many ways peculiar but also exemplary case of a culture whose boundaries, at least if we understand them as national boundaries, are in many ways porous and fluid. Looking at that case can help us to reflect on the gaps which emerge in traditional theories of, translations, of translation once we consider the fact that it is not just texts that travel, but people too. And translation practices travel with them, inhabit all the spaces that they inhabit, refusing to stay neatly linear and containable in binary models such as original and translation. And I suppose looking at the Italian case is also an antidote to something else, to the thought that this is only happening now, that this is only a phenomenon of the last 20 years or so. Actually, uh, one of my examples will be from the 1930s, and, and it's there to show that these things actually have a longer sort of... Uh, uh, timeline on them. Now to explore what can happen when geographic and textual mobility cross and overlap, I want to tell you two stories. One is a tale of one man and one novel, his only masterpiece, which has travelled and continues to travel since 1939. The other is almost a story of glossolalia, I would say, of multiple personal and artistic metamorphosis driven by an unstoppable love for writing, for words and for a multitude of languages. But let me keep you in suspense for just a few minutes and have that little theoretical detour that I said I was going to have. So to talk about mobility, translation, and self-translation for a little while. Well, the connection, as we've heard already, the connection between translation and mobility is often traced back all the way to the, the etymological roots of the word. The Latin word translatio indicating the movement or transfer of objects and people across space. But the Italian translazione actually also refers to the movement of saintly bodies, the transfer of holy relics. And indeed, translation does itself often appear to have much to do with some kind of holy relics. 
It is, um, in its literary variety, it ensures a work's afterlife, as Walter Benjamin put it. It can sustain its canonization and perpetuate its fortune. And thus translation, I would say, is also associated with the bearing across the transmission of revered notions, such as identity, subjectivity, national spirit, and so on. Now, in recent years, specialists on subjects ranging from ethnography to postcolonial theory have approached these concepts of travel and translation, widening, broadening their scope for good and for bad, as we've been saying. And in order to underline the increasingly pervasive role played by various forms of travel, including the movement across languages and cultures within contemporary societies. At the same time, the connection between geographic and cultural movement was also brought to the fore by a number of historical phenomena, such as postcoloniality or um, attended forms of neocolonialism, because when we talk about postcoloniality, I think we cannot forget that very often postcolonialism has a way of turning into neocolonialism. Globalization, of course, accompanied by renewed forms of localism, of which uh, Michael Cronin has written so eminently about. And the impulse given to these trends, um, by these trends to both physical mobility and the creation of wider and faster communication networks. An increasing attention has been devoted to a variety of forms of mobility inflecting the notion of travel to include gender and class-related perspectives as well as notions of economic migration, exile, diaspora or mass tourism and paying attention to transnational forms of identification such as nomadism and cosmopolitanism, of which I'll talk a little bit later on. Many of these perspectives are in turn, I would say, directly connected to questions of language, translation and translatability, as well as to the forms which these take in today's mobile world. And for me, in this sense, cultural translation only makes sense if the linguistic element remains firmly inscribed in it. We don't have to chuck it away, baby and bathwater, but I think it has to have this very strong anchoring to the, the linguistic um, element. As a result of all this change that has been happening, we're also querying notions of translation and established conceptualizations of the model of translation, such as source text, target text, source culture, target culture, in these neatly binary um, models and highlighting the role of complex, multidirectional phenomena such as polylingualism, Edward was talking about it just now, translingualism and self-translation. And what I'd like to do then is to ask what happens if instead of talking of national literatures, of boundaries, boundaries and of territorial as well as cultural integrities in some way, we talk more pervasively in terms of vectors and overlapping superimpositions. What if we multiply, for instance, the possible models of Italian language and Italian literature and admit the importance of a varied range of phenomena rooted in polylingualism and in translation, but also in self-translation? What if we start to speak more pervasively, as I was saying, not that we haven't, but more pervasively, in terms of multiplicity and of dynamic maps, which trace the imbrication of cultures and communities, their interconnections, and exchanges, and the history of those who have chosen to testify to them. So the way I want to do this is by looking at instances of self-translation and polylingualism. But here, a little bit of clarification on the terminology that I'm using perhaps is useful. I use the term polylingualism in a way which is probably synonymous with multilingualism. But 
definitely not with bilingualism, because it's broader and wider and more complex. What interests me are those complex entanglements of language, which somehow defeat binary models such as classic bilingualism. And I prefer polylingualism to multilingualism because it seems, at least to me, but I may be wrong there, to be closer to what used to be called languages in contact, and rather than by association with more popular but also tainted words such as multiculturalism. Plus, of course, polylingualism reminds me of Bakhtin and of polyglossia, which is never a bad thing, so that, that's fine. Now, with self-translation, similarly, I want to indicate more than a binary combination of languages or a real linear process in which an author first writes something in one language and then transfers it afterwards uh, into another, either doing it himself or herself or delegating that to someone else. This is one particular kind of self-translation. Uh, well, self-translation if the author does it, obviously. Um, but, well, what I'm interested in is a whole range of strategies which allow an author to produce polylingual work, for work for which the plurality and the combination of languages is essential, constitutive, indispensable to the existence of that text. In a sense, the examples that Harish was giving us this morning were precisely about that, and so were the examples that, that Gen um, Edwin Gensler was talking about. This notion of self-translation has, of course, points of contact with what um, Stephen Kellman has called translingual imagination, though translingualism doesn't always coincide with polylingualism, of course. More useful, I think, is Rainer Grutman's notion of heterolingualism, a co-presence of idioms which can take multiple forms, sometimes making the imprint of each idiom immediately evident, and in other casing, cases, hiding its, polylingual, um, uh, its polylingualism underneath an apparently homogeneous surface. Heterolingualism and translingual writing can also be connected to recent rereadings of notions of cosmopolitanism, I think, both in their refusal of a monolithic image of national cultures, as well as, importantly, of national audiences, because there's the element of reading and reception that's inscribed in here as well, and in that of the, in the refusal of an equally totalitarian monoglossia. And I'm thinking here in particular of the different models of literacy and linguistic diffusion outlined by scholars like Sheldon Pollock, um, whose exercises in comparing and contrasting European and Southern Asian uh, um, models of the cosmopolitan and the vernacular um, underline how in the Sanskrit tr tradition, and I'm quoting Sheldon Pollock here, no affective biological links had been drawn between language and country. No notion had emerged of a mother tongue to be loved in all exclusivity and therefore never betrayed. Contemporary rereadings of cosmopolitanism, on the other hand, speak of individuals who are, and I'm quoting again Vertovec and Cohen in this case, more than ever prone to articulate complex affiliations, meaningful attachments and multiple allegiances to issues, people, places and traditions that lie beyond the boundaries of their resident nation state. And I would also add to languages there. Ultimately, I like the idea of connecting polylingual practices with self-translation because this seems to encompass a wider variety of phenomena than many of the other terms that I could use here and that I have mentioned, but also especially because it underlines the question of agency, the way in which the subject can sustain difference, heterogeneity, complex and fluid notions of identity and social interaction by working with the complexity and fluidity of languages. In doing so, the writer as subject 
is undergoing a process of self-translation. Yes, fine. Yet in self-translating, the polylingual writer is not necessarily the victim of translation. He or she is not forced into, in, into it as a tragic choice, as suggested by Pascal Casanova in her République Mondiale des Lettres, where the out-out for the writer from the periphery is assumed to be the one between betraying one's culture in order to achieve fame through translation or resigning to eternal invisibility. My ideal self-translation is the opposite of Casanova's vision of the tragedy of translated men, she calls it. In fact, the polylingual writer can be quite literally empowered, as noted by Edwin Gensler in the book that he showed you before, and I've made a number of people read it, but I recommend that you all read it if you haven't, in relation in particular to what he calls America's border writing. This is the kind of writing where, and the words are now Edwin's, translation is less something that happens between separate and distinct languages and cultures, and more something that is constitutive of those very cultures. He asks questions in there, such as, what is the source language in a border culture? What is the target language? How does one distinguish a translation? And he shows us how border writers take English and rewrite it from within, how using translation in a polyvalent fashion, they add meanings and resonances to the familiar terms. In the case of the mostly Spanish-American in that particular uh, text, authors that, that he examines, he notes that while translation is invariably present, it's not marked as such, but rather can remain hidden, or even become deliberate non-translation, or equally deliberate mistranslation. And the result is that this strategy of anti-translation, denying access to the original, makes the monolingual audience member feel insecure and without their normal power. And this goes back again to what Harish was saying this morning. Who is Salman Rushdie writing for? Why does he do certain things with translation and not others? In practice, it seems to me that in spite of all attempts to contain literature within linguistic and cultural boundaries, the kind of polylingualism that Kensler is talking about is much more common than we might think. And however paradoxical this may initially seem, the polylingual practices which characterize it, even when they appear to deny translation, are part of a strategy of translation and self-translation. So let me move to my examples and to the um, movements between Italy and America. The Italian cultural context is, in all its complexity, is a particularly fertile ground for the study of the kind of phenomena I am interested in. And Italian-American writing, I think, is in particularly a particularly good case in point. Among the traits that characterize Italian cultures, of course, there are Italy's relatively short history as a nation state, the complexity of its linguistic geography, and of the way in which this overlaps with social and political maps. Plus, of course, we need to take into account the intricate history of internal and external mobility, which marks Italian nation for its, from its very start. Between 20 and 30 millions of emigrants left Italy over the century that goes from 1870 to 1970. And today we still witness multiple mobilities, a continuing Italian diaspora, second or third generation return migration, and internal migration in a context of strong regional identities, as well as mass immigration over the last few decades. Which takes me to uh, my two authors, who are Pietro Di Donato and Jose Rimanelli, and their Atlantic crossings. The personal histories and the literary production of Pietro Di Donato and Jose Rimanelli share a number of traits, but are also marked by substantial differences. 
Both authors, authors can be classified as Italian-American writers, and both are often described as eccentric figures. As innovative writers with a devoted following who nevertheless like, lack widespread recognition, especially in Italy, both are marginal and influential one, at one and the same time, depending on our perspective and the magnitude of the lens that we use in looking at this. Equally important, or perhaps even more so, are the differences between the two writers. Di Donato and Rimanelli represent two distinctive moment, moments in the history of Italian migration and of its literary expression. The first began to write in the 1930s and described the life of the workers and families who arrived in the United States towards the end of the Great Migration and later found themselves caught up in the Great Depression. The second began, began his career in Italy short, shortly after the Second World War under the auspices of Pavese, Calvino, Calvino Vittorini. He then emigrated to America where he continued to write, adopting, as we'll see, an increasing number of styles, languages, and genres, and finally reaching a certain degree of popularity only in the 1990s. In the context of Italian migration, Di Donato and Rimanelli also represent two different generational perspectives. One is definitely a second generation migrant, like John Fante and others writing around the same time. While Rimanelli, the other case, can be considered, depending on how you look at it, sorry, can someone open again? <laughs> can be considered as first, second, or third generation, depending on how we look at his personal and family history. The two authors, their lives and their work, also embody different approaches to the narrative representation of migration. In both cases, biography and bibliography are strongly interrelated. But while for Di Donato, the leading trajectory of migration is the initial stimulus and central theme of a limited literary production, strongly dominated by the novel Christ in Concrete, which appeared in 1939, for Rimanelli, multiple changes and constant genre-defying works um, sorry, added the cipher of a complex personal trajectory which takes shape in a kaleidoscope of languages, language variations, and language combinations. So while migration is an experience shared by both writers, the different approaches to it lead them to different linguistic and literary choices. And their works have also traveled repeatedly between Italy and the United States, between English Italian and dialect as well, and at least in the case of Rimanelli, also between multiple other languages, um, both ancient and modern. So let me start with Pietro Di Donato uh, quickly. Do I have about 10 minutes, Keith? Yeah. Yeah, good. Now, Di Donato and his masterpiece, Christ in Concrete, which was first published in 1939, and which is a book which has been unjustly forgotten or relegated to the margins, as Fred Gardafay has written, both in Italy and in the United States. The novel is an incredibly powerful piece of writing, especially in its first section, which, uh, in which Di Donato, who was himself the son of Abruzzese migrants who, um, and whose father, a bricklayer, had died in a work accident on Good Friday, 1923, describes the world of migrant builders in New York and the death of one of them, Jeremio. The force of the writing is largely inscribed in the language used by Di Donato, an idiom which um, Gardafe has described as neither Italian nor English, but an amalgam of the two, and which Di Donato constructs by often translating literally into English the rhythms and expressions of the migrants' own plural, strongly regional and dialectal Italians. 
Critical appraisals of Christ in concrete have a tendency to point out a presumed contrast between the structure and the language of the novel, and also between its literary quality and its social intentions. Critics have tended to praise Di Donato's expressive prose and his dramatic portrayal of working conditions in 1920s America, but have also decried the episodic, fragmentary nature of the novel. And yet, the nature of Di Donato's language, while too idiosyncratic to be ignored, has often been treated reductively, mostly as a function of the social and political dimension, as well as the ethic flavor of the novel. The most subtle critics of Di Donato's work, however, have drawn attention to the intrinsic, rather than purely instrumental, quality of his literary idiom. In his introduction to the 1993 edition of the novel, Gadafè says, Di Donato's Italianità becomes most obvious through the novel's diction. As mediator between the Italian culture and of his parents and the American culture he was born into, Di Donato masterfully affects our understanding of both through, of both through his unique linguistic representation of both. His word choice and word order recreate the rhythms and sonority of the Italian language. He does this through two methods, recording the broken English, which results when the immigrants try to speak English, and by translating the immigrants' Italian into English. Now, while this is an accurate description of some of the most evident language strategies used by Di Donato, the impression given is that of a rather limited, rather containable effect on the novel's English, a sort of contamination limited in particular to dialogue sequences and aimed at mimicking, you know, mimesis, at mimicking the language difficulties experienced by the migrants. And yet the texture of Di Donato's idiom is in fact much more complex. Helen Barolini perhaps came closest to capturing the quality of this unique prose when she states that, at his best, as in Christ in Concrete, Di Donato's narrative pattern form, in their diversity, one of the richest linguistic textures to be found in a 20th century novel, and make the bridge for him and for his characters between a lost and mythical Italy and the real but never realized America. And what Barolini is underlining here for me is the anti-realist element of Di Donato's language, as well as its complex layering. This is not to say that there isn't a mimetic effort in the language of Christ in Concrete, but rather the mimesis is compounded with other mechanisms, with strategies of a much more experimental nature, which lead him to mix biblical language with high literary style, calques of Italian syntax, with uh, colloquial expressions and polished English phrasing. And I've put a couple of quotations in your handout on the, on the front page. You'll find quotations from this. I'm not even going to try to read it, but you can see an example of what I'm talking about. This is not pidgin writing by an incompetent speaker. The result of Di Donato's composite technique is rather an elaborate layering of multiple translation and self-translation from language to language, but also cross registers and social as well as regional variants of both English and Italian, which creates a highly effective, though necessarily very idiosyncratic idiom. What ultimately stands out in Di Donato's novel and gives the book its energy is the linguistic and formal complexity of the writing. At once, a high modernist prose, perhaps at times even jarring to today's um, year, and a powerful mix of realist intentions and daring experimentation, which sort of boil over into expressionistic effect. 
in all this, there's also an undeniable capacity to renew English from the inside through the translational mechanisms that I have just mentioned, as well as a plastic quality, which can become gripping, as in the case, if you look at the second quotation that's taken, it's just a few lines taken from the moment of the death of Jeremio. And I can promise you, I get um, um, MA students to read the whole chapter, and they say it's a punch in the stomach. It's a, real, it's a piece of writing that you can't read without feeling emotional about it. Pietro di Donato's masterpiece belongs among what I would call multivocal texts, and in, wi in which self-translation is inscribed into the texture of the writing, both at linguistic and at cultural level. In this kind of writing, a translational, translational tone or echo is not a duplication, nor an afterthought aimed, to add, uh, aimed at adding a bit of ethnic color, nor indeed an involuntary, undesirable residue of the writer's lack of fluency. Instead, Polylingualism and processes of cultural as well as linguistic translation are intrinsic to the nature of the writing, which could not exist without them, and which only become fully readable if we are aware and alert to them. And significantly, I'll, I'll sort of mention this only very briefly, but the peculiarity of Di Donato's language is such that even Italian critics have from the start remarked on this. The first translation came out in 1941 for Bompiani, one of the leading uh, publishers, with a, a, a preface, a one-page preface, which is um, signed by the editor. It could be Bompiani, some say it could be Vittorini. Whoever it is, it's an influential piece at the time. And what that preface does is to read the content of the novel. We're under fascist Italy. The novel was censored, actually. The name of the translator was changed um, for somebody else's because the actual real translator could not be named as he was a well-known anti-fascist and so on. But the content is, is tagged as strongly Italian in spirit. And the whole thing is read as a sort of peon to the greatness of the Italian emigrants. But the language is deemed not up to the task. This is not literary enough. It's not even verga, let alone prosa d'arte. But in saying that, there's also the final sort of clawing move that says, but this conquers, this is Italian conquering English, a foreign language from the inside. So it's very interesting in its way. Now let me briefly talk about Rimanelli. Even more complex than Di Donato's are the linguistic and personal uh, migrations of Giorgio Rimanelli, whose biography and writing defy any linear interpretation of migration as well as of translation processes. Rimanelli, depending on how we look at him, is either a first-generation Italian-America, he moved to the, Itali to the United States from Italy in the 50s when he was already in his 20s, late 20s, I think, if I remember correctly. Or he can be seen as a second-generation migrant. His mother had been born in Canada, second generation herself, and had lived there for a long time. His uh, father had also immigrated and spent a long time in the United States. They then moved back. He was born in Italy, but in a sense, he was already a second generation. Or third generation, both of his paternal grandfather, grandfathers had spent most of their life in the United States as emigrants in the very first wave of immigration. He first, his first novels such as Tiro al Piccione, which is from 1953, uh, and which is based on autobiographical on an autobiographical account of a war fought on the wrong side. Uh, he was uh, enlisted in the Repubblica di Salò, and is written under the influence of neorealism and of authors such as Pavese and also um, Calvino Vittorini. They read his manuscript and had it published, so there was an influential backing there were then translated into English, as you would expect in the sort of traditional fashion, let's say. 
But even after adopting, in his late 20s, English in the United States as his home, Rimanelli never stopped writing in Italian. And for a while, he had this sort of kind of functional strategic bilingualism, where he was writing academic prose in English and creative writing in Italian. Then he, start, he started writing creative writing in English as well, but very peculiar creative writing indeed. And if you look on the other um, side of your handout, at the very last short quotation, I won't even attempt to read it there, other than to say that I, I, was, I shall challenge some of um, John's wonderful quotations of names from the Mafia there. Uh, with, If you look down there, you will find a, you will find a Santo Zip the Thunder Tristano. He is increasingly producing work in Molisano dialect, the dialect of his origins, as well in a composite mixture of idioms, which includes his original dialect, his two national languages, idiosyncratic conflations of the two, the latter especially in that novel, in Benedetta and Gisterland, um, and a variety of other tongues, starting from Latin and Provençal, um, which he usually introduces in his own work through source texts and quotations. Rather than imposing a binary, linear model on both Rimanelli's life and his work, we should perhaps then concentrate on his multiple personal allegiances to Canada, the United States, Italy, Molise, and on how these are in turn multiplied in his work. An eminent example of this polylingualism um, is in the volume Familia, from which the other quotation I've, I've given you um, comes, which is entitled Memory of Emigration, and which goes back to his grandfather, his mother, his, his uh, father, and so on, and all their experiences. And it's a complex puzzle of multiple overlapping genres, registers, and languages. Rimanelli's strategies work most effectively also when taken cumulatively the sort of cumulative effect, so that micro-strategies can achieve a macroscopic effect. And the passage that you have there sort of gives you a sense of that. This composite linguistic identicate has implications for the writer's mechanism of personal identification and for his cultural allegiances as well. And the non-linearity of migrant experience is then translated into the non-linearity of translation, and even of translations of translations, with their multiple trajectories, refractions, and reflections through space and through time. In his poetry collections, for instance, he will do things like taking a, a, a poem from any language. He will go from Octavio Paz to Provençal to uh, Latin to German, the German of Paul Celan, which is in itself a complicated German, of course, um, and then do a translation, sort of pagina <coughs> fronte, side by side, in Molisano, with the Italian standard only as a footnote at the bottom of the page. You do things like that. And this is why, as Gardafe has noted, one culture could not satisfy Rimanelli. And it is also possibly what lends Rimanelli's voice, the ability to rejuvenate English in a way that few writers could do who were blessed and burdened with it as their first language, as noted by Anthony Burgess. This is also, most probably, what makes um, migrant writing for Rimanelli the ultimate literary experience. But it may well be the reason why this kind of literature often encounters difficulties in finding its ideal audience. Now, I wanted to play you a piece. He also does performances to jazz and blues music to the back in Molisano, uh, but the link's not working at present. But I have put the link on your, on your uh, handout, so if you want to enjoy Rimanelli in action, just go there and you'll get it. So to conclude in one minute, two. Even from such a very quick sketch of their work, I hope you can get a sense of how national, ethnic, and linguistic labels are incapable of containing the work of authors like Di Donato and Rimanelli. 
And we should also note how, in cases such as these, reception to becomes double or multiple as a process, tracing its meandering paths from the United States to Italy and then back again. And I can't go in more detail into that, but there are further transitions. The initial transition, for instance, of Di Donato uh, was very, very uh, standardizing, extremely normalizing. A recent one has been done, which is worse than the first one. But the critical links between Italian-American studies and Italian studies are rereading Di Donato in other ways. So it's interesting how this is happening. If we are to understand them in their fluidity and complexity, the circumstances applying to both the production and the reception of works by authors like Di Manelli and Di Donato call for a translingual and transnational perspective capable of overcoming the limitations of both the national model of literary historiography and the one based on notions of hyphenated literature, you know, the Italian-American as a, as a political ethnic statement there, demanding instead a more fluid and flexible understanding, both of literary and um, of language trajectories. And yet, even labels such as translingual and transnational have their ambiguities. We can use the label of translingual, but we need to understand in which way um, sort of this is used. And I think we need to use it in a way that's at least partly different from what Keller does, um, Kelman does. Kelman's image of translingualism is essentially that of an author operating a choice between languages or tracing a movement between them which nevertheless keeps them fairly separate. So much so that he talks of the fact that translingual authors um, highlight the difference between languages and cultures precisely in and by the act of switching between them. I'm more interested perhaps in authors who do not so much jump from one language to another, but who often, through processes which can be analyzed in terms of self-translation, non-translation, pseudo-translation, mistranslation, show that they are not satisfied with one language alone, with one culture alone, but attempt to find fluidity, as I was saying, among them, and to translate this fluidity into texts that are characterized by an inherent constitutive polylingualism. Are these transnational writers then and transnational works? And once again, yes. And these are definitions that I like tendentially, but as long as we understand what we mean by them. If by transnational we mean those authors who are read and become canonized across multiple nations and national readerships, the bestsellers you were talking about, okay? Uh, the bestsellers of world literature and, you know, part of a globalized publishing industry, then this is not, clearly not, what I mean. And in fact, both Di Donato and Rimanelli remain marginal, if anything, in all their collocations, as Italian, Molisan, Italian-American, whatever you want to call them. Equally, if we substitute uh, this transnationality a posteriori, let's say, um, with the image of the international author as someone who intentionally sets out to write for and, for and according to the perceived requirements of an international industry and an international audience, nowadays tendentially dominated by Anglophone markets, of course, or perhaps by Paris, if you read Pascal Casanova again, then my examples do not fit even the second image of a sort of a priori transnationalism as a market ploy. Rimanelli and Di Donato um, have very little to do with what Emily Apter has described as the drive towards a transnationally translatable monoculture or the corporate global United Nations speak in which every message is beamed in simultaneous translation around the world devoid of concepts, concept text and deceptively value free. 
What we have here are rather polylingualism and self-translation practiced as an act of assertion of agency from a minoritarian point of view. Perhaps something more similar, therefore, to what Apter again calls translational transnationalism, with its attention to the linguistic predicament of minorities and micro-minorities. And ultimately, I think what we have to try to recover is some notion of agency for both writer and reader. And I think Di Donato, with his multiple hybridizations of genres and tongues, or Rimanelli, with his progressive glossolalia, in spite of all the exclusions and, mar and marginalizations they evoke, can point us in the right direction. Thank you.